This audio recording is presented by City Church Orlando. This morning, the scripture passage comes from the Gospel of Mark, chapter 8, verses 27 through 38. And Jesus went on with his disciples to the villages of Caesarea Philippi. And on the way, he asked his disciples, Who do people say that I am? And they told him, John the Baptist, and others say, Elijah, and others, one of the prophets. And he asked them, but who do you say that I am? Peter answered him, you are the Christ. And he strictly charged them to tell no one about him. And he began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and be killed. And after three days, rise again. And he said this plainly. And Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. But turning and seeing his disciples, he rebuked Peter and said, Get behind me, Satan, for you are not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of man. And calling the crowd to him with his disciples, he said to them, If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake and the gospel's will save it. For what does it profit a man to gain the whole world and forfeit his soul? For what can a man give in return for his soul? For whoever is ashamed of me and of my words in this adulterous and sinful generation, of him will the Son of Man also be ashamed when he comes in the glory of his Father with the holy angels. This is God's word. Again, let me welcome you this morning. Uh, It's been a hard, hard week. Uh, Not only planning for two services and just the difference that is for us as a church um, and all that comes along with that from big picture to the micro details, but um, this week uh, I had a procedure. Um, And uh, on Thursday, I went in for a procedure or surgery and... um, my, uh, my kids, who have watched their mom go through several surgeries and procedures, um, were inquiring with Trisha as to what was going on. And um, Trisha said, well, your uh, dad is having a procedure, and so when he gets home, you can't wrestle with him, you cannot jump on him, he's going to be sitting in the lounge chair and just trying to relax. And, um, and, and they pressed her a little harder because she didn't really answer their question. And they were like, so why is daddy having a procedure? What's wrong? And she said, well, your dad's having a procedure so that I, I don't have any more babies. The, the three-week-old was totally fine with that answer. <laughs> the three- and four-year-old thought, well, that's swell. What a good idea. The six- and seven-year-old started going, he's having a surgery so you don't get pregnant. And so they still don't have the answer. And um, it's okay, we'll talk to them about it later. So it's been a hard week. I mean, I feel like I should have that cone around my head up here. Um, We tried to explain it to them. Remember when Princess Blueberry had a surgery and she had that cone on her head and they're like, so why isn't daddy wearing a cone? And so it just, it kept going downhill from there. But the real reason that this was an incredibly hard week other than that humiliating event uh, in my life is the fact that this text, this text is so easily confused and horribly convicting all at the same time. I mean, I don't even know how to begin to tell you other than 
we can get into some massive heresy here really quick, thinking that we can earn our salvation. And at the same time, we can just run away from what Jesus said and, and act like it doesn't really matter for us. And the truth of the gospel is somewhere in the middle, that Jesus absolutely did die for us. He did everything he had to do to save us. But part of his salvation is saving us from trying to create a life for ourselves. And so part of his salvation, according to the world, is going to look like death to us, but that's really good news. And there's a part inside of us that absolutely abhors this idea that something inside of me has to die for me to have life. And yet Jesus is gonna walk us tenderly, lovingly, and strongly. Couldn't think of a good word. He loves us too much to not continue to come back to us and confront us about our selfishness. If you were here last week, I, I preached, the same text was read by the person who read the scripture, and I told you that this, um, this portion of the book of Mark is, is the hinge of the gospel of Mark. It's right smack dab in the middle that if there is uh, one uh, act at the beginning and one act on the second half, the first act answers the question, who is this Jesus? And the answer is given in verses 27 through 30. His identity is given. The, the answer is given that this is God in skin. This is the anointed one that the Old Testament looked forward to. This is the son of man who is going to come and establish an eternal kingdom of God that will squash evil and rebellion, that will breathe life and mercy and truth into God's world and would last forever with all sorts and unique uh, diverse peoples in it. And so Jesus is this one, the one, that, the king that is an end to all kings, the prophet that brings an end to all prophets, the priest that ends the priesthood to a certain extent. And so then we said, well, if that's who he is, starting in verses 31 through 33, what's his mission? If his identity is the Messiah, what is his mission? And we looked last week at this idea that, that his mission is to come and to be rejected, to suffer, to die, and to rise again. And we talked about why would that be his mission? Why, if he's the king of kings and lord of lords and here to establish an eternal kingdom, why would he have to go and go through this humiliation, this suffering, this rejection, this pain, this death, enter into Satan's dominion itself? Why would he have to do that? And the answer is because he doesn't want just his kingdom without his children. In order to bring his children into his kingdom so that we can enjoy forever with him in the new heavens and the new earth, he had to go to where we were. Did you pick this up this week in City Bible Reading? City Bible Reading is this initiative where we're reading a chapter from the Old Testament and the New Testament together every day, and then we expect to interact on it in community. It's just a way for us to learn how to read the Bible in a biblically illiterate culture. Did you pick up this on Colossians 1, verses 12 through 14? It says that we should give thanks because he has delivered his children from the domain of darkness. So the first thing Jesus does is he enters into the domain of darkness, death itself, and he delivers and ransoms his children out of that death. So when he found us, we were enslaved to Satan and darkness, whether we realize it or not. And he has forgiven us our sins. So the sin that put us into slavery under Satan is the sin that he forgives in dying on the cross. So he forgives our heart's rebellion that sold us into slavery. But not only that, it says, in addition to this, he has qualified us to share in the inheritance. So he takes us, from being slaves of darkness to sons and daughters who inherit with him the new heavens and the new earth. I was thinking about this this week, this grand reversal, and I thought I would just describe it to you this way. I have a friend that I went to seminary with who went from six figures of debt to six plus figures of wealth, and one I do. 
In other words, his wife was rich. But he had no idea she was rich. Her parents lived a very simple life. They were very frugal. He thought that she was taking on his debt and they were gonna conquer it together. But instead, after the I do, the mom and dad of the bride pulled them aside and said, listen, you have no idea that we are going to take your debt and we're going to give you this wealth. Now, don't hear me say that's what the gospel is. The gospel is not a financial exchange. It's so much more than that. But that is the story of the gospel. We come in utterly in debt and we are given the wealth and riches of Christ. And that's why Jesus, God, took on skin and did not go straight to the throne, but went to the throne through his cross because he wanted to include his children in his kingdom. And so if the creator God came to die for us, what does that mean for his disciples, his followers? I told you last week that the third part that is summarized right here at the hinge of the gospel of Mark is if the first part is who is he? He's the Christ. The second part is what did he come to do? He came to be crucified and rise again. What does that mean for his disciples? The word disciple just means follower. It means someone who comes behind him and does what he does. So what is that gonna mean for us? And I would tell you that we'll have three ideas this morning. Discipleship is confrontational. Discipleship is radical. And discipleship is logical. So let's dig in. First, discipleship is confrontational. Let's pick up in verses 32 and 33. Jesus has just said all of these things are gonna happen to him. He, he, he takes the son of man idea from the Old Testament, which is all this amazing glory. And he says, I'm gonna go from the glory I had before through suffering back into glory in the new heavens and the new earth. And Peter pulls him aside because this is an oxymoron. It is a contradiction in terms. Everything that he had learned from his mother's knee all the way to this moment told him that the Messiah would go from victory to victory to victory to victory. And this idea, idea of defeat in the middle was absolutely oxymoronic to him. He could not begin to understand it. And so he pulls Jesus aside, verse 32, and he began to rebuke him. If you'll see in verse 31, Jesus began to teach. So he's, Mark's letting us know this was a long conversation where Jesus was trying to pound into their heads this counterintuitive Messiah. And so Peter, because Jesus has just taken aside two people to heal them, takes Jesus aside And he, like Jesus, begins to pound into Jesus' head how demonic this is. This word for rebuke has only come up so far in the gospel and only really comes up in the New Testament age to talk about exorcisms. He's like, you are saying something absolutely crazy on the verge of demonic. And then the one who Matthew says is the blessed Simon Peter, the one who has been blessed by God to understand that Jesus is the Messiah becomes the blasted Peter. Jesus says to him, verse 33, get behind me, Satan. Deeply ironic. Peter is so scandalized by Jesus' mission that he implies that Jesus is on the fringe of demonic behavior, but in his rebuke, Peter himself becomes the mouthpiece of satanic thinking and satanic temptation. Not only does Jesus say, what you are doing is satanic, that is the origin behind your words is satanic, but he made sure all the other disciples were paying attention. Do you see this? So much for confidentiality. So so much for not believing that the sins I'm committed can be learned from by other people. So much for that. Jesus says, listen, publicly and severely, get behind 
me Satan. Now that is so severe and so public, we have to take a rabbit trail. If you're new to the Bible, you'll remember, maybe if you're with us back in Mark chapter one, that there's this thing called the temptation of Jesus. When his public ministry is about to begin, Jesus goes into the wilderness and he fasts for 40 days, right? And remember, during that time, Satan himself is coming to Jesus and tempting him. He's trying to derail his mission. He's trying to get Jesus to not go to the cross. He's trying to get Jesus to fall into sin so that he cannot die for you and me and take our guilt. Jesus is being derailed or the temptation is to be derailed by his mission. And in that temptation, Matthew and Luke and Matthew 4, Luke 4, they they give us three different temptations that happen. The first one is the temptation to self-gratification. You're hungry. You haven't eaten in 40 days. There's a rock. Turn it into stone. And so he tempts Jesus to gratify himself, to gratify his flesh apart from the, whole, from, from the Holy Spirit leading him to do so. And the second one is self-promotion. He says, why don't we go up to the top of the temple during the busiest time of year and let's get everyone's attention. Let's have you jump off and the angels will swoop down and save you and you will increase your following a hundredfold if you'll just go do this amazing thing in front of all these people. Let's go use God's resources, his angels. Let's go use God's resources for your ends, for your promotion. And then the third temptation that Jesus withstands, and of course, all of these, he answers scripture. And he answers back, I'm not gonna do that because it's not the will of God. The third one is the same one Peter is trying to get him to do right now. The third one is self-serve. Satan says, listen, if you will bow down and worship me, I will give you all the kingdoms of the world. And here's the temptation in a nutshell. Don't go from having all the kingdoms of the world into humiliation back to having all the kingdoms of the world. Step over the suffering part and just take the kingdoms of the world now. Sound a little bit like Peter? This is how Matthew 4, verse 10 ends. Away from me, Satan, for it is written, worship the Lord your God and serve him only. And then in Luke 4, 13, it says, and when the devil had ended every temptation... He departed from him until an opportune time. He's back. (laughs) Same temptation. Something for us to learn and hear today is it's the exact same origin. That Jesus says you are thinking in line with Satan when you think in line with the things of man. When you put the interests of man in your heart to serve them, that is the same as working for Satan in his kingdom of darkness. There is no neutral territory in all of creation. Either we are working for the glory of God in what we do say, think, and behave, or we're working towards the kingdom of Satan. But Satan is so, so smart. He, he's so wise. He doesn't ask us to get black candles. He doesn't, he doesn't ask us to throw children off a ledge. He doesn't ask us to, to wear black fingernail polish all the time. This is what he asks us to do. Just kind of go along with culture and do whatever they do. Self-promote, self-serve, self-gratify. It's all about you. And try and stay within the bounds of the law unless they're dumb like speeding, and then just go past that. But try and stay within the bounds of the law and keep your nose clean and just promote yourself for your entire existence. Try and make a life out of the physical existence that you've been given. And Jesus says that's satanic. And the same exact rebuke is given except for one massive addition. In Matthew 4, verse 10, he says, away from me, Satan. Now, forgive me, I have to use a Greek word here. I apologize. He says, hupago which if this word is all by itself, it means be gone, get out of my presence. But to Peter, you wanna know what he says? 
He says, hupago opiso, get behind me. It's the same exact word he used when he saw Peter in the boat in chapter one. He says, get up and come after me. It's the same exact word being used for other disciples in chapter one when it says they got up out of the boat, they left their family and all the workers in the boat and they got behind Jesus. If he says it by itself, he's saying, get out of my presence forever. But if he says, get behind me, he's saying, you're still my disciple. And this is a direct confrontation on your selfishness and your self-centeredness. And yet I'm saying, get behind me because I'm gonna go to the cross first and I'm going to die for this sin but you're going to be right behind me heading to a very similar death. So if we apply this to us, we have to understand that Jesus will conquer his enemies, but our catechism says he will subdue his friends through confrontation. That in his power and might, in his kingship, he will squash his evil enemies, but he will subdue his friends. That part of the process of being a believer, part of the discipleship process is the gradual process of bringing your thinking in line with God's thinking through confrontation. It's not so much what we know or do, but it's the the priority given by Jesus in his rebuke of Peter is it, it is the thinking process that matters. It is the valuing that matters. It is the assessing of life that matters. It does not matter what content you have in your brain theology. It does not matter so much what you do behavior. What matters is your mind being changed to think like Jesus, to value what he values, to believe what he believes, to do what he does because you think like him. That's discipleship. Now, you should know from John chapter 21 that after Jesus comes back from his death and he's been raised again, Peter and John are hanging out with him, going for a walk. And and Jesus has just reinstated Peter after his betrayal. And he says to Peter, he says, listen, when you were young, you used to dress yourself and go wherever you wanted to go. But when you're old, someone else is going to dress you and they're gonna take you where you don't wanna go, clearly saying you're gonna be crucified. And John's right there and Peter says, yeah, but what about him? Jesus says, don't you worry about him. I got other plans for him. You just get behind me. You just follow in my footsteps. And so if the first part of discipleship is that it's confrontational, believing that it's radical is not gonna be that hard to see. Do you see this? Let's just read verse 34 together. Let's just grapple with what Jesus says. And just in case the crowds weren't listening, he called the crowds to himself and his disciples and said to them, if anyone would come after me, follow me, same word, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. There's two steps. There's an ongoing two-step process that Jesus outlines here for discipleship. It is a continual and perpetual denial of self and an ongoing clinging to the cross. You just keep doing this over and over and over. I keep doing this over and over and over. It's very important for us at this point to just stop and and just think back who the original audience is. I haven't done this in months, but this entire book is written to, to Roman Gentile believers. This entire book in the late 50s, early 60s is being written to people under Nero's persecution, 
This entire book is being written to people and being read to people who that day might have to go into Nero's courtroom and hear this. Either you deny Jesus and say, Caesar is Lord, or pick up that crossbar right there and walk away the path to the Mount of Crucifixion and get up on your cross and die. And so in the original audience, this whole idea of deny yourself instead of denying Jesus which would be positively stated in Caesar is Lord. So this whole idea of deny yourself and pick up your cross is very, very literal. There are people hearing this then and now who if asked by governing authorities, do you submit and love Jesus? If they say yes, they will deny themselves and literally walk up the steps of the guillotine. They will literally stand blindfolded in front of the firing squad. They will literally give their life right there like that. And that's what Jesus is saying. And you and I are saying, Whew, glad you told me that part about the original audience. <laughs> Woo, I thought for a second you were going to tell me that we had to do this. So the question becomes, is this about you and me today? Or is this just about Peter at the end of John 21? The 12, 10 of the 12 were martyred for their faith. Or was it just about the crowds? Or was it just about the audience in Rome in 60 AD? I would submit to you that this radical idea that we will find life by dying to ourselves and helping others, that we will find life in dying to ourselves and receiving the life that Jesus gives, I would submit to you that this radical idea that we should walk towards death with the crossbar on our shoulders is just as much for us as it was for Peter. Let's just go back to the text. If anyone wishes to come after me, Not only that, in Luke, when Luke is recording this exact same conversation, listen to the similarities and listen to the one difference in Luke 9, 23. Luke is writing to one man and scattered believers that are not under persecution. This is what he says. And he said to them all, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross daily and get behind me. Well, that doesn't make a bit of sense. How could you go to the most grotesque form of crucifixion, of killing someone day after day after day? I mean, Rome was a pretty effective government. I got a feeling that if you went to the cross, you were not coming off of it. And that's exactly right. The point is this. The point is this, that you and I, in response to what Jesus has done for us and in order to obtain life in him, and I don't mean eternal life, I mean life, satisfaction, peace, depth, right now, in order to do that, we will either take the steps up to the guillotine or we will take a thousand, 10,000, 100,000 paper cuts that will eventually kill us. That right now, our perspective on life should be this, I'm walking towards my death and looking for it. That our perspective every morning daily should be this, this is not about me. This is not about my comfort. This is not about my agenda. This is not about my gratification. This is not about me by myself pursuing life. This is about me receiving Jesus and having life in him through denying myself. Deny just means renounce. It means to give up claim to. Now, we've got to just remember this. This is so, so important. I am not telling you, I am not telling you that you and I have got to go and deny ourselves 
and, and beat ourselves and cut ourselves and commit suicide. I'm not saying we have to do that to get Jesus to love us. What I'm saying is this, that to the extent that we believe that he has completely saved us, we will give him everything we have, including the rights to our life. And the way that we will grow in giving him our life is by studying, thinking through, singing about, believing, preaching into each other's hearts his love for us. So if discipleship then is confrontational and if it's radical, I would submit to you that it's also logical. That we have to see this as loving We have to see this as liberating. We have to see this as gracious. We have to see this as good. We have to see that he goes first. Part of repentance for us is not going to be, I was wrong to do that. Part of repentance is saying that, that thing I did in rebellion, that thing I did in trying to capture life, that thing I did, the foundation I'm trying to lay for success, the foundation I'm trying to lay for significance, that thing that I'm doing to try and make life out of the existence you've given me is not just wrong and rebellious, it won't work. The part of repentance is agreeing with Jesus what he says in verse 35, whoever would save his life will lose it. Part of repentance is the idea that not only is it wrong for us to rebel against what God says, but that it will kill us and it will not give us life, although it might give us a momentary hit of happiness. We have to agree with Jesus. This is why Jesus gives four fours in support of his argument. If verse 34 is his primer on discipleship, It's a two-step process of denying yourself and denying your chance at making life by yourself. And if it's taking up his cross, owning what he did for us on the cross, and literally taking up our cross so we can join him in it. If that's discipleship, he gives four logical reasons in verses 35, 36, 37, and 38. He gives us four logical reasons as to why this makes sense. I'm not gonna spend a ton of time on on the first idea, which is uh, the idea of eternity, I'm just gonna put it out there. I'm gonna spend more time on the idea of effectiveness. I think for us to let go of our idols, I think for us to let go of those things we're trying to find life from, I think to let go of created things and and worshiping them with a divine passion, I think for us to let go of them, we have to begin to see that they're not effective and that when our hands are then opened by our repentance, they can then cling to Jesus and in, in clinging to Jesus find life. But the first is just this idea of eternity. Four times, Four times in verses 35, 36, and 37, four times the word suke comes up. Now, it's confusing because in our translation, translations, rightfully so, it is translated life two times in verse 35, but it is translated soul in 36 and 37. Now, here's, the, here's, here's how it's, it's intentionally a paradox by Jesus. He is intentionally saying in verse 35, he's intentionally contradicting himself, but you untie that knot by understanding that when he says life and when he says it, he's talking about both sides of suke. He is saying, if you want to save your life, physical existence, you will lose it, eternal existence. And he's saying, if you will lose your physical existence, you will gain it, eternal existence. And again, this is not about saving ourselves. This has to mean something more right here and now. It has to mean something in our lives right now. This is what Jesus is saying. He is saying, if you want an identity, suke, soul, if you want your innermost being to rest, you have got to give up 
the desire, the conquest to try and get your innermost desires, your soul, who you are on the inside. You've got to quit defining it by earthly 72-year-long things. And you've got to define it by the eternal gospel of Jesus. And so what he's saying is he's saying this, is that not only, not only does this make logical sense if you'll think in the realm of eternity, but it makes logical sense if you'll think effectiveness. Does it work? Listen, the people at the Louisiana Purchase, do you know how many countries mocked the United States for buying what is called the Louisiana Territory? Only Napoleon historically was for us in seeing that it was a good move. But now, hundreds of years later, when time has gone by, everyone agrees the Louisiana Purchase was a brilliant idea, that we got it for cents on the dollar. Anyone that gave their life savings towards Microsoft or Google, back when it was eight people or 10 people in a garage, time has borne out for them, eternity, if you will, has borne out for them the wisdom of that choice. And that's what Jesus is saying. He's saying it sounds crazy to pick up your cross and follow me, but listen, if you'll think through a longer perspective than a few years, it's gonna work out, okay? But not only that, he's saying what's effective. He's asking us to think about what is effective. I would submit to you, based on what Jesus says, that each and every one of us is on a self-salvation project. Do you see what Jesus says? He says, whoever would save his life will lose it. What a strange, rich packed word, whoever would save his life. And then he says, what good is it to gain or merit or achieve the whole world? And Jesus is telling you and me that we are all on self-salvation projects. We are all trying to build a life. We're all trying to build a life out of our physical existence. And that if we can just begin to realize that life is not random, that what we're doing right now is not just a treadmill, that what we're doing right now is you and I in pursuit of existence, I think this will help us tremendously that we try and breathe value into our lives in a variety of ways, depending on our culture, depending on our parents, depending on our unique makeup. Some of us try and find life in career. Some of us try and find life in a marriage. Some of us try and find a soul in kids. Some of us try and find rest in our body image. Some of us try and find life according to the weight on the scale. Some of us, it just depends on what the, the best clothes are and if I've got them or not. Some of us, it's just jewelry that we're wearing. Some of us, it's the vacation that we will have in the future. Some of us, it's a sports victory of our favorite team. But if we would begin to understand that we are giving our 72 years plus or minus 71, eh, not plus 71, that'd be a long life. But if we would begin to believe that what we're doing in our life is a self-salvation Project, we can begin to look at it and repent from it and say, that is not going to work. Here's some diagnostic questions to help us figure out what our self-salvation project is. What is that thing or person or idea that if it's taken away from you, you don't see life as worth living? That's a self-salvation project. Could be a very good thing, could be a very bad thing. Another question, what are your best dreams and your worst nightmares about? That will reveal to you what you treasure at the core of who you are. And if it's anything other than Jesus and the gospel, it's going to let you down. What thing, if threatened, causes us to feel like we're falling apart at the core of who we are? I'd like to give you what I consider three proofs that we cannot gain life or self-save. Proof one, the object 
or the thing pursued to provide life changes over and over. In my life, as I look back at it now, I can see in the following things that I was trying to get more out of them than what they're created for. I remember as a young man playing Little League Baseball that if I had the right Easton aluminum bat, everything would be okay. I remember as a man playing baseball that if I could just make the all-star team, everything would be okay. I remember as a teenager that if my dad would buy me a dune buggy or just the right Volkswagen Beetle that I could turn into a dune buggy, everything, I have no idea why. Chris is looking at me. He knows I don't even know how to change the gas in my car. I have no idea why I thought I could put together a dune buggy or I ought to operate one. But I was utterly and absolutely convinced as a 16-year-old that if I had a dune buggy, I would drive down the street and people would be like, ooh, now there's somebody. That guy's got an identity. He's valuable. Went from a dune buggy to a motorcycle. I did get the motorcycle. It went from that to sexuality. It went from that to drugs. It went from that to the business I started. It went from that to seminary. It went from that to my marriage. It went from that to my kids. Now, it's a good sermon. If I, if, if I tell you my, my deepest nightmare, it is looking like a fool in front of you. That reveals something sick deep down inside of me that's still trying to feed on created things instead of Jesus. And I would tell you, because it has changed so many times in my life, that means I can't possibly make it happen. Proof two, not only does the thing pursued change, but the thing itself changes. I just bought the second iPhone. The third one is coming out in a couple weeks. My kitchen that I put in two years ago is now out of date. The clothes that we will buy today, well, because we live on the East Coast, they're already out of date. I mean, think about that. Think about what we try and find life in. The car that we buy will be replaced in a few months by a better model. This should show us that if we try and save our lives, we will lose it. Another word for the same word, destroy it. It just can't work. Proof number three, I was thinking about this this week a lot. The pursuit of the thing itself is more satisfying than the reality gained. It was more fun to look in the classifieds for a Volkswagen Beagle, Beetle than it would have been to have it. It was more fun to look for the right Honda Magna 1100 than to actually have it. It was more fun to look for, for houses online than to actually buy one. It was more fun to think about and to scheme and to think about my addictions and how I was gonna get them accomplished than it was to actually sit in them and have them. I'm telling you, this is why we can know it won't work is because our pursuit of life is more enjoyable than the thing we thought would bring us life. And that should tell us something. I think personally, this is why eBay, Craigslist, and Facebook is so popular. It is constant pursuit and never holding on or rarely holding on to the thing you're pursuing. And it is eating us alive. I will tell you the exact opposite is true of the gospel means of grace. That when someone asks me if I want to get together and pray for an hour, I think of all the reasons why I shouldn't do it. I dread it. I avoid it. 
I think of all the reasons why coming up into that and pursuing that event will not provide me life. And yet when I go and pray and glory in the gospel of Jesus and listen to someone else talk to their heavenly father through the blood of Jesus, my soul absolutely comes alive. When I ask people to go into 13 weeks of training to be a city group leader, I get the best excuses you have ever heard. And I totally understand that. I totally get that. I mean, part of it is I'm leading it. They don't want to listen to me twice in one day. I totally get that. But there's part of that that is the idea that the pursuit of the means of grace is not as sexy as the pursuit of an idol. But I am telling you time and time again, the people that come, not because I am there, not because I am teaching, but because we do it as a community rallying around Jesus, it is so enlivening to our souls. So this should tell us that what Jesus says, that if we wanna keep our life for his sake and the gospel, we will save it. So, Let's say I accurately described you and I and the treadmill that we're on. How do we get off of that treadmill? How do we get off of the treadmill that's saying, get life in me? How do we get free of that? And Jesus tells us in verse 38, we have to realize that underneath all of it is a need for approval. Do you see this in verse 38? Whoever is ashamed of me and my words in this adulterous and sinful generation. We have to understand that we're trying to build a life that people around us will approve of so that we can feel like we have a reason to exist. The opposite of ashamed, you know, when someone, when you're ashamed, it's because someone's mocking you for the choices you've made. And so we dance and we jump through hoops and we do all these crazy things to get people to approve of us and to just say we have value and we have identity, and that we're special. It could be a mom, a dad, could be a child, could be a spouse, could be a sibling, could be a professor, could be an employee, could be an employer, could be a figment of our imagination with the worst attributes of all those people pushed together into one, that we are living life for approval. And so how do you get off of this treadmill? How do you get out of this downward spiral? Is it not to find a far greater, more eternal, and more satisfying approval in the gospel? One that you did not earn and one that I cannot lose. The only way to go back up through the process I just described to you that is the things of man is to go back through with the things of God. That if you start at the foundation with God the Father's approval of your life, not because you've achieved it, because Jesus gives it to you in his life, death, and resurrection, then you can begin to peel back the onion and move back up through and get back to the top and not deny him and other people that get in the way of your life, but deny anything that gets in the way of having him. That the only way for us to unravel this and to get off of this treadmill is to rest in the approval that we have in Jesus. On the cross, Jesus says, quoting Psalm 22, he quotes Psalm 22, go back and read the whole thing. But at one point he says, I am not a man, I am a worm. He lost his identity. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? He lost the approval of the Father, so that you and I, just by repenting and believing, can become the man that he was and the approval that he has. Let's pray. 
Lord Jesus, I pray that you would do this work in our hearts. I pray that you would change our values. I pray that you would change what we love and live for. I pray that your Holy Spirit would be freeing us from the slavery of trying to build a life for ourselves. I pray that through your gospel in community, we would denounce and let go of any created thing that we look to satisfy us and we would cling to you and what you've already done for us. And in so doing, I pray that you would give us life as we die.